0: So I'm now going to introduce our really excellent uh, line of speakers and moderators that that we have uh, for this session today. Um, who, again, you you likely um, already know uh, because they're all um, international leaders in behavioural trials, and they've all won many awards for their work and um, have been particularly influential in um, developing networks of decision makers um, to actually translate knowledge from behavioural science into policy into policy and practice. So. I'm really thrilled to be to be introducing um, this um, panel, these panelists today. So our speakers are um, Dr. Susan Mickey, uh, Dr. Kim Lavoie and Dr. Sherry Stewart. So Dr. Mickey is a Professor of Health Psychology at University College London in the UK and is Director of its uh, Centre for Behaviour Change and its Health Psychology Research Group. Um, her research focuses on behaviour change in relation to health, uh, particularly around the use of theory, so how do we advance theory in this area uh, and how do we use it to understand behaviour change, develop behaviour change interventions? Um, and our particularly develops methods to um, advance the study of behaviour change, which is currently principal investigator of the Human Behaviour Change Project. Um, next up we'll have Dr Lavois, who is a field professor in the Department of Psychology um, and Chair of Behavioural Medicine at the Université du Québec à Montréal. She is also co-director of the Montreal Behavioural Medicine Centre and, as we know, co-lead of the IPTN Network. She currently holds a Quebec Health Research Senior Investigator Award and her research particularly focuses on the impact of psychological stress and lifestyle factors on chronic illness, on developing interventions in this area, where she has particular expertise in motivational communication. Our final speaker is Dr. Stewart, who's a Tier 1 Canada Research Chair in Addictions and Mental Health and a Professor in the Departments of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience and Community Health and Epidemiology at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Canada, where she founded the Centre for Addiction Research. Her research focuses on psychological and motivational factors contributing to emotional and addictive disorders um, and their co-occurrence and on, again, evaluating interventions in this area. And our discussion today will be moderated by Dr. Michael Vallis and Dr. Robert West, Dr. Ballas is a Health Behaviour Change Consultant and an Associate Professor in Family Medicine, again at Dalhousie University. His main area of expertise is adult health psychology, with an emphasis on obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular risk and gastroenterology. He's worked in the public health system for 35 years, uh, where he developed the Behaviour Change Institute. He trains healthcare providers in behaviour change um, and is active in research on motivation, behaviour change and adaptation to chronic disease. Um, our second moderator is Dr. West, uh, who's a professor of health psychology at University College London in the UK. He specialises in addiction and behaviour change and is editor-in-chief of the journal Addiction. His research focuses on areas such as evaluation of pharmacological and behavioural aids to smoking cessation um, and on understanding motivation. He's helped to create the blueprint for the UK's uh, National Health Service Stop Smoking Services and has acted, acted as an advisor uh, to Public Health England in this area. So, I'd now like to formally begin the session um, and invite uh, Dr. Mickey to begin her presentation. And if we could get Dr. Mickey's slides loaded as well, that would be great.
1: Uh Aha. Oh dear. (laughs) No. Not quite sure how to make Oh dear, I'm so sorry. Thank you. It's a, it's a very tiny version in the middle okay. of my screen. Um, huh. If you want, Susan, you
2: can change your view options at the top of zoom and you can, um, you can, I believe you can remove yourself.
1: Hide self. Okay. okay. And it, that might make it bigger. Hmm. I, I can hear a, Robert you can, next door coming to try and help me.
2: You can also stretch the screen. Like, you, if you just go to this edge of your screen, you can kind of oh. make it wider or that's, longer. Yeah, that's like the, where, the, where the
0: slides meet the camera, you can pull that across. Yeah.
2: Is
1: yes, that it? And then, and then what you want to do. So I'm getting some technical support from the moderator. That's great. You've got <laughs> a great moderator there.
3: <laughs> do you want to put it on? Yeah. Is, Is that all right? So, I don't know. So,
1: um, yeah. Um, then if you just. Yeah. are yeah? yeah, okay. in control. Right, right. Um, <laughs> sorry about that technical hitch. Um, and uh, delighted to be past this session. Um, my only sadness is we can't catch up over coffee and um, over drink in the evening, but um, look forward to when we can. And um, to say this is um, uh, slightly changed from a talk I gave yesterday to the United Nations on World Psychology Day. So apologies to anybody who saw it yesterday um, because it's a bit similar. Um, So here goes. Uh, What I'm uh, wanting to do is take a behavioral perspective to uh, limiting COVID-19 transmission. Uh, Just to say something about who I am. I'm director of the Centre for Behaviour Change, uh, which has collaborations and networks all over the world and uh, does a lot of uh, translation of science into policy and practice through various uh, types of activities. Um, In terms of COVID-19, I'm a member of the UK government's Behavioural Advisory Group, and I'm also a consultant advisor on behavioural science uh, to the WHO. I thought you might be interested in terms of uh, what uh, we're doing in the UK. Um, It's the group is about more than 12 psychologists, probably about 20 now. Actually, Um, we have health psychologists, social psychologists, emergency psychologists and also anthropologists, sociologists, behavioural scientists and communication experts and ministers and various aspects of uh, government ask us questions and we then draw on all the evidence we have to try and answer those questions and obviously um we're lacking in kind of real-time evidence although we have been running some um experiments to look at for example the types of um, how best to present different kinds of tests um but we draw on what we can as everybody is doing uh literature from other situations unpublished reports uh surveys, current surveys, uh, huge numbers of um, polls being uh, conducted, interviews, focus groups, expert opinion. And just to give a, a flavour of the kind of papers that we produce, uh, we, we've probably produced about 30 or so now, I think, um, but general ones such as uh, how to improve adherence to government guidance, options for lifting or tightening restrictions, effective communication strategies, Um, And then also more specific uh, topics such as school closures, self-isolation, household isolation, uh, social disorder and policing strategies. I think the government were a bit worried about that at the beginning. Uh, How best to present diagnostic and also antibody tests, managing deaths and funerals in lockdown situations, um, establishing social bubbles or micro communities. As I say, that's just um, a few of them. And if anybody's interested, If you go on the website for Scientific Advisory Group and Emergencies, um, there's probably about 20 of these published and I think another dozen or so going to be published tomorrow. Um, There's been a real call to publish them more rapidly than has been happening previously. So I'm delighted that that's um, happening now. Um, uh, One of the things that's good about uh, what we're doing is that uh, we're at liberty to publish the papers that we, or or build on the papers that we uh, produce for the government into scientific papers. So um, here's an example of one paper that myself and uh, Robert West led on, um, and we had it uh, rapidly turned around and published in the British Journal of Health Psychology. Um, So I want to say something about um, human behavior and the way in which it's um, the root of transmission and also the um, key to suppression Uh, say something about the contribution that uh, we can make and also say something about um, using frameworks models and diagrams to communicate um, across disciplines across sectors Um, find it very helpful Um, now in reducing the pandemic obviously uh, governments have focused on isolation. So um, keeping vulnerable people and infected people physically away from others and also social distancing. So staying at home except for essential journeys, banning gatherings uh, and closing non-essential shops and establishments where people congregate. And um, isolation and social distancing have been very effective in controlling epidemics, but obviously of enormous cost to people's livelihoods. Their education, mental health, and also the economy. Um, and the alternative um, is widespread and rigorous adherence uh, to personal protective behaviours. Um, and I'll say a little bit more about those. Um, but those could potentially reduce the extent to which we rely on the disruptive, top-down, isolation, and social distancing measures. Actually, not just potentially, they definitely do. And actually if we could get those behaviors adopted at scale by the whole population it would stop the pandemic dead in its tracks Uh, easier said than done so bit of a bit of a challenge there so these are the uh, personal protective behaviors or ppbs as we're calling them and we're all very familiar with them washing hands with soap not touching the t-zone eyes nose mouth which is how the virus gets into the body sneezing and coughing into tissues and disposing of them uh, and where appropriate, in, in indoor enclosed spaces, wearing face masks uh, and social distancing. Uh, so we could solve a very big problem, i.e., a global pandemic, pandemic by changing um, these uh, seemingly small behaviours at scale. Um, so all of those who said, you know, it's only systems that we should be looking at upstream, etc. Actually, this is really shows that it's human behavior (laughs) that's at the heart of causing and solving many problems. And to um, demonstrate uh, how behavior can have its effect in blocking transmission, um, I'm going to present a diagram um, that, uh, again, Robert Weston, myself and um, colleagues developed. um, And it's available if people want to see it in um, Nature Human Behavior. So, um, here we have the basic pathway. We've got the person who's infected on the left-hand side um, and the person who potentially could be infected on that solid right-hand blob, top right-hand corner. And you can see the the different pathways in which a virus can emanate from this infected individual and reach somebody else. Now, here we have a, a blue Rectangle, and on the left are all the behaviours to do with the infected person, and on the right, um, the transmission route in terms of the um, person who's not yet infected. It's a shame I can't um, make this full screen so that I don't see myself, and I can see this bigger. but never mind, let me see if I can read this. Gosh, I can't enter full screen. No.
3: Mm.
4: Hi, Susan. This is Guillaume from IBTN team. So yeah. uh, are you, do you think your camera is too big? You see yourself too big?
1: Yeah, I want to get so, rid of myself.
4: Um, so I think there's a way maybe, uh, you know, between your camera, your, yourself and the, the screen, there should be a little sp- sweet spot with the, if you put your, um, your uh, cursor on it to just reduce, you can reduce or uh, upgrade your screen.
1: Mm. Oh gosh, what does this do?
2: So it's like if you were, Susan, if you were um, making a a table wider or thinner, there's like an imaginary line and you can kind of shrink your your camera view. I've got it. All right,
1: fantastic. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Right, sorry about that. I couldn't actually see the screen before. Okay, so um, what we have here are the uh, green boxes, which is the use of tissues and the purple boxes, which are the um, using uh, masks as appropriate. Then um, we also have at the top there, maintaining physical distance. You see these arrows are where we're actually blocking the transmission route. Uh, Now in purple, there's washing the hands with soap or uh, sanitizer, again, blocking a route. Then we've got uh, disinfecting surfaces and um, that's an objects so that's going to be even more important as people return to the workplace. And then we've got um, not <laughs> touching eyes, nose and mouth. Okay, so that's sort of building up what the transmission route is and what these behaviors are. And as you can see, if everybody was doing all these behaviors, those poor viruses would be stuck. <laughs> they would be on their way out. Um, The other thing that um, as behavioural scientists we can do is explain how different behaviours require different sorts of interventions. So here are the four behaviours I've been talking about. And if we think about washing hands with soap, this uh, requires um, new routines and new rules, if then plans that we know are very effective ways of actually um, Changing behavior, if I'm in this situation, i.e., coming into a building or about to eat or prepare food, then I will uh, wash my hands. Um, so it's a way of really establishing new rules, establishing new habits. When it comes to not touching the T zone, this is um, often a, an automatic habit. I mean, we're, uh, evidence suggests we're touching our faces more than 20 times an hour, often without um, realizing that we're doing it. Um, So it's either automatic or we're responding to an urge such as an an itch. So for that, you know, an if then rule wouldn't be appropriate, we need to develop an incompatible behavior like keeping your hands below uh, shoulder level, um, sitting on your hands, putting your hands in your pockets, clasping your hands, um, and then also thinking about wash your hands before and after. So there you've got a kind of a a chain of behaviors that need to uh, happen. Then obviously sneezing and coughing into tissues, it actually requires a tissue. How do we make sure we have tissues on us when we haven't got a lifetime habit of doing that? Or some of us don't. And so new routines, like every day when you check, do you have your keys in your purse in your pocket? Do you also have your tissues in your pocket? And then social distancing, more complex because it depends on other people, depends on your environmental uh, situation that you're in. So you can see, all of these uh, requires a different type of analysis as to what's going on, and um, a different kind of solution. Uh, and I want to say something about uh, working with policymakers, um, with governments, and um, one of the main things I've, uh, I've learned over the years is that one actually one actually has to be aware of uh, the differing agendas. Incentives and terminology between policymakers and scientists, and one of the other challenges um, and one we 're really faced with, I have to say in the UK is all those that wonderful advice we 're given on how to communicate and uh, other such things. Do any of them actually translate through into policy and have an impact? Who knows um, Some of the s- solutions I mentioned, I think using frameworks and models can be very helpful and uh, also using templates to structure what's quite complex information into actionable recommendations. Because I think that's something else we need to be very aware of, that we we talk (laughs) in very complicated ways using very complicated terms and policymakers really don't have the time or inclination to get involved with that. So we do have to make things really, really simple, obviously without uh, dumbing down. a very simple model of behaviour, probably the simplest one that at the same time is uh, comprehensive, um, has been developed from the experience of working with policymakers, um, COMBI, standing for Capability, Opportunity, Motivation and Behaviour. And basically, all of these things need to be in place if behaviour is to occur. And when one's thinking about intervening, there's obviously a, if you look, you see there's sort of feedback loops going in between those. Um, so it can help guide which of these you target in which order. And then um, also those who are familiar with uh, the behaviour change wheel um, that has a series of intervention types and policy options that you can link um, the analysis of behaviour in its context using COMBI to the interventions and policies that are most likely to be effective um, for it. So, um, that's really helpful. And if only all politicians and policymakers could just remember that it would be excellent. And just to give an example from the UK, as to this not happening uh, was in in April, it was after a long wet winter. And it was the first weekend when the sun came out, absolutely gorgeous. Uh, Soon after the lockdown, of course, we went to the park and we were allowed to go out once a day for exercise. Um, And So we went out and then the media took lots of those sort of long distance lenses, which makes it look very, very packed. And then our um, health secretary uh, made a threat and said, if we're going to carry on doing that, uh, they would um, close the parks. So error number one, the polling data showed, despite how the media were portraying it, it there's only 2% of people who were breaking the lockdown. Um, and 99% wanted to adhere to it. Um, the reason that many people weren't keeping two metres apart was due to crowded open spaces. And the, prob- prob- the problem was opportunity rather than motivation. So they'd misread that. And so certainly when I've been on the media, I've been calling for things like opening up the 45,000 acres of private golf courses there are in London and all the huge number of playing fields in private schools that are using, not being used at the moment. Uh, sadly, uh, the politicians don't seem to have acted on that, but it won't stop me calling for it. For it, um, so error three: th- the, you know, if there's a problem, uh, don't threaten people with punishment. So it was the wrong solution for the wrong problem. And um, if the UK government had actually worked with communities, co-created, co-developed, as we're all you know, basic ABC of um, our work. Uh, then we wouldn't be in the kind of problems uh, we now are in, which is uh, costing um, thousands of lives. um, And these are avoidable deaths. So uh, finally, I just want to go and say something about um, communicating behavioural science. Um, Working with the WHO, uh, the key thing that they have been um, trying to think about um, in relation to encouraging um, member countries to use behavioural science data, is to um, think about how to present it simply in a way that people can actually act on it. Uh, So large amounts of complex data uh, are being circulated in the form of surveys and polls, um, but countries vary enormously in terms of the resources they have to interpret that data and translate the data into actionable recommendations that obviously can make a difference in practice. Um, So the survey that WHO have been uh, sharing is a global survey um, uh, done by the organization called Cantar, it's COVID-19 National Barometer. And uh, so enormous amounts of data come through from that. And previously the WHO had just been circulating that that to countries, but realizing that they thought nothing much was being done with it. So um, I've been brought in to think about how can we make this data more usable and useful to countries. So um, using this framework, we developed a template to first of all extract the key messages from the data per country. So we we um, produce country specific reports and also have country specific uh, dialogues uh, to go through it. We then organise the messages into coherent categories linked them to a model of behaviour and translated them into actionable policies. So our template questions, we separated out and and the survey is sort of all over the place, but we extracted into thinking about feeling, emotions like concern and anxiety, uh, thinking, knowledge, risk perception, behaving, for example, health related behaviours or media consumption. Then we've also looked at to what extent is the population adhering to guidance and then using COMBI, what are the influences on that adherence? Is it capability and or opportunity and or motivation? Because that then can guide the countries in terms of the type of um, interventions and policies that are most likely to be effective. Um, So just to give a tiny little bit of this template to give you a feel as to what we're doing, uh, here's something taken from one of the Brazil reports uh, just about feelings. Uh, So uh, we've got here feeling one, feeling two, so uh, the, the second column here, the survey findings, uh, Brazilians have relatively low levels of concern around health in relation to COVID. And then we, our next column is context and interpretation, which we may gather from the survey, from our own knowledge, from talking to other people, but just how can we understand uh, any particular finding? So the context of this is that the country leadership consistently underplays the severity of the virus. And our act application, our action point um, was to communicate the severity of the pandemic using trustworthy sources about deaths, about overpowering the health service, about the future of the economy and quality of life uh, in Brazil. And then the second feeling was concern about um, increasing sort of economic instability. But anyway, that gives you a sense. And obviously we go through all the thinking and the behaviors, but that's our structure. Okay. Um, so in conclusion, um, pandemics are obviously global. So developing solutions also needs to be global. And we need to strengthen our international scientific and work and application. And you know, if this pandemic has um, shown the world anything, it's that individuals are connected, communities are connected and countries are connected. And we ignore that fact um, at our cost. And um, I do hope that uh, some goods will have come out of all the bad that we're currently experiencing. Um, I hope I've shown you that behaviour is at the heart of transmitting COVID-19 and at the heart of suppressing it. And to most effectively change population-wide behavior, we need to draw on the science of behavior and behavior change. And this is a huge challenge. I'm, I'm old enough that when I was young, uh, you wouldn't think about sitting down to eat a meal without washing your hands in advance. Sadly, um, I failed to bring up my children in that way, um, partly because you know, the, the, the cultural norm had changed and we need to find ways of getting this um, back across the world. Um, and finally, uh, models and templates I find to be very useful in uh, summarising and communicating uh, what we know in an accessible way and trying to translate scientific thinking and evidence into a form that's um, useful to those involved in policy and practice. And for any of you who want to um, find out a bit more about this, um, on the left is a Nature Human Behaviour paper um, that Robert West was first author of, and um, the other paper that I mentioned uh, before, looking at um, options for increasing adherence to social distancing and then three out of i think it's now about eight um blogs and bmj that myself and others have um written with various aspects of um behavioral science in relation to uh covid19 so i'm terribly sorry if i took more than 20 minutes with all my faffing around with um the te- technical aspects of the presentation not at
2: all susan thank you so much and I, actually i'm going to speed up a little bit because i think uh, the my introduction is going to touch upon almost every point that you mentioned. So it'll be a nice segue into um, our international study, which I think is really following uh, from a lot of the the excellent points and and comments that you've just made. So I'm really excited to uh, present to everyone some preliminary results, very preliminary, so preliminary that I only finished my talk. (laughs) I think mine was the last to upload yesterday. And I want to thank my fantastic team for helping me get this together. Um, so I am going to also present on behalf of the entire eye care study team and following from the previous session, uh, I, I'm, I'm hoping to show you what can be accomplished in our fantastic behavioral medicine community in such a short time. So everything I'm going to present you today, uh, began, uh, the last week of March, and this is the culmination of, um, two months worth of effort. I just want to say about my uh, camera, my camera's on my laptop, but my my big screen where I can see, a bit like Susan, I'm getting, you know, my eyes are getting weary. Um, So you're going to see my profile, unfortunately. So it's just a little bit easier for me to present that way. All right. So uh, these are my disclosures. I'm just going to put that on full view. There we go. That should work there. There we go advance perfect so as susan uh uh, very well described in the absence of a vaccine a treatment or cure the key to slowing the spread of covid is adherence to public health policies Um, but of course these come with significant personal social and economic costs that might undermine adherence for a number of reasons and we think that understanding the psychosocial determinants of adherence might help inform policy and communication strategies so i think uh, susan really set us up well to understand this Now. I think as well, we would all agree that there's a a ton of insights to be gleaned from behavioral science around issues of threat perception, the leadership and and the communication that's coming from our government authorities, um, the competing interests, our individual versus our collective interests, how messages are communicated, um, the context in which pandemics and responses and policies are being rolled out, and of course, individual differences in stress and coping and how these can also be important motivators and barriers to adherence as well. So uh, this is the birth of eye care. Um, And on March 11th, less than two weeks after returning from spring break in New York. So the last time Simon Bacon and I were in a restaurant was in New York City. And this was because our spring break in Montreal is, is quite early in the year. And we were there from roughly February 28th to March 3rd. And a few weeks after we returned home, the pandemic had really hit Montreal and our lockdown began. Now, on March 18th, it became apparent that public adherence to the rapidly emerging and quickly evolving policies was really what was key to flattening the curve. And and we saw this from what was coming out of the international news. And we just felt like we wanted to help. We felt like we needed to do something. So we said we had this brilliant idea. Let's put together an international team and create a behavioral science informed survey to answer the following research questions. Um, what are the determinants, both, you know, sociodemographic, psychological, behavioral, physical, mental health, and economic determinants of COVID-19 related policy adherence? And even, even um, more importantly, what policies launched where, when, and for whom seem to be most and least associated with adherence, and most and least effective at reducing infection rates and mortality? And of course, as Susan uh, said, Um, we really wanted to help provide more data-driven recommendations to local and international governments on how to optimize both policy and communication strategies with the obviously the ultimate goal to to address the two major outcomes of COVID and that is health outcomes and those related to um, the economy and quality of life. So we designed uh, very quickly, uh, uh, record quickly, uh, an international multi-wave cross-sectional observational cohort study and we're doing sort of two kind of studies in parallel. One is a relies on global convenience snowball sampling. Uh, and we're also conducting representative sampling in target countries. And we're only doing this in certain uh, subset of countries, primarily due to feasibility. But these uh, countries, um, we selected them to represent all the continents of the world, uh, to be a representative of all phases of the pandemic curve, um, as well as uh, having representation from LMIC as well as high income countries. And for feasibility, of course, we need a local investigator willing to take the lead on representative sampling. So these are the list of countries. I'm not gonna go over this in in too much detail right now, but just to show you that this is where the different countries find themselves on the pandemic curve. These are roughly the income strata of the different countries, and these are the continents. So I just wanna thank for um, the, the investigators listed here for taking the leadership role in the representative sampling. So we launched the first wave of the survey on March 27th. And uh, the survey was really constructed uh, and informed by the major modules, by the COMBI model and the health beliefs model. And uh, the modules are as follows. We obviously asked about sociodemographics, demographics and we've uh, tried to align um, our, our uh, questions with other international studies. And our study features among those being recognized by the OBSSR of NIH as being one of the international surveys with potentially harmonizable data. We ask questions about health status and health behaviors. Um, To what degree are people aware of their local public health policies? Uh, To what degree are they adhering to them? We're also examining COVID related concerns. And in wave two, we added a module on COVID-19 related impacts because we believe that as people are starting to feel the consequences of the pandemic, this is gonna further serve to motivate behavior. Um, we are also linking our survey data with country level policies, and we're bringing in Oxford Policy Tracker data. We're also looping in John Hopkins case, death, and recovery data, as well as Google mobility data. So, as you can see, we're really bringing in a lot of data. And so, I don't, unfortunately, for today, I don't have the external data to link to the survey just yet, but stay tuned. Um, things are coming out pretty quickly. I just wanted to show you here how we've roughly um, mapped on our survey questions to the uh, combi model. Uh, not to belabor the point, but things like uh, people's health conditions, awareness, for example, uh, of your country's policies would, would map onto psychological capabilities, for example. Um, obviously, certain social demographics would map onto physical and social opportunities. Um, motivators or concerns would reflect reflective motivations. So we've really made an effort to ensure that we're not just slapping a survey together. It's really informed by behavioral science theory uh, that is um, solid and robust. Um, this is roughly the survey schedule. So as I mentioned, we launched wave one of the global survey on March 27th. And we ended up with a total of 28,700 or so respondents around the world. We also at the same time got uh, representative samples from Canada, Australia, and the UK. We launched wave two roughly the first week of May, and we're towards the end of our wave two data collection. And of course, wave three will be uh, launched within the next couple of weeks. So progress to date, and now we're gonna move right into the results. So when we launched on March 27th, we had 93 international collaborators from 26 countries. And we now have at last count, I I hope I have everyone, 158 international collaborators from 38 countries and a survey that is now available in 36 languages. And we were able to get this together only because of the outstanding um, uh, collaboration and goodwill and motivation on the part of all these international collaborators, and many of which weren't known to us uh, before this endeavor. So I really want to uh, thank them. And uh, without the community, this wouldn't be possible. In terms of recruitment to date, uh, and this is recruitment numbers from March 27th to May 6th when we closed out Wave 1. As I mentioned, over 28,000 respondents, including uh, 7,000 from representative samples in Wave 1. We had over 37 in total. And data to date, and this is as of a day or two ago, we had about 10,000 or so in our global sample and another seven or so thousand projected in uh, representative sampling. Now, I just want to say that so far, we have managed to do all of this without any dedicated funding. So Simon and I and some of our collaborators have pulled together little bits of money. So everything you're seeing here is actually without any dedicated project funding, of which we have applied to. I'm going to present to you now Um, some preliminary data, and uh, we were able to pull some uh, country data. And what we've tried to do is we've tried to pull in uh, data from countries for which we believe we have enough data to say something meaningful. And we've also selected countries based on where they are in the world and where they are in the curve. So we're going to present to you data from North America, Canada and the U.S., South America, Brazil and Colombia, Europe, France and Italy, as well as Taiwan and Kenya. Um, And all all told, this represents about fifteen or 16,000 of our 20,000 or so survey. Uh, So just to let you kind of give you a a flavor for who we're talking about. So it would seem that um, of all of our global respondents, it's a primarily female sample, uh, approximately 70%, uh, with a mean age of around 41, mostly uh, employed pre-COVID, mostly well-educated and either middle or upper income. One third have a health condition that's a significant risk factor for COVID-19 related complications. These might include cardiovascular disease, chronic lung disease, autoimmune disease, high blood pressure, diabetes. Um, 12% of our sample uh, have identified as being essential service workers, so high risk of exposure. And of those uh, respondents who said they got tested for COVID, nearly 11% said they tested positive. Now uh, there's a ton of results, so what I did is I put a results plan so we can kind of keep it straight and Simon and I uh, took some time to really kind of streamline the results and pull out the things that I think uh, are are some of the more interesting things that we can present to you right away. So I'm going to talk about how people are perceiving government policies, um, adherence to prevention measures, the the major ones, um, what are people's COVID-19 related concerns, What's the association between the strength of different types of concerns and behavioral adherence? And what uh, seems to most likely motivate adherence? So when we ask people, what do you think of the actions taken by your government uh, to prevent or reduce the spread of COVID-19? We find that fewer younger age groups are satisfied with the policies and those from younger age groups uh, seem to find them too lenient. In the blue bars, you have under 29s, and then 30 to 69 is that sort of middle age group, and then the 70 plus is those seniors who seem to be more at risk. We also find if you look at this by country, more people from uh, basically Brazil, France, and the US find policies too lenient, which is quite interesting because of, um, I mean, it's interesting too that Susan just presented data on Brazil, and it would appear that our survey also seems to coincide with the feeling that the government uh, responses in some countries, at least from the perspective of the population, may be inadequate. If when we ask patient, uh, patients, excuse me, respondents, the frequency with which they've engaged with, uh, in each action or, beh- or behavior in the last seven days, what we find is overall, with the exception of wearing a mask, most people report adhering to the major prevention measures at least most of the time. So this is the 80% mark. Uh, and the red bar indicates those who are indicating um, practicing uh, hand washing and social distancing, at least most of the time. So that's pretty good. Um, I'm going to present you the flip side of this graph and, and draw your attention to the last item, and that is if you, are, uh, if you have tested COVID positive or you believe you have, um, you have COVID-19, but weren't able to get a test, what proportion of those people report self-isolating? And globally, more than 16% of people with confirmed or suspected COVID worldwide report not self-isolating at least most of the time. So this is not all of the time, this is at least most of the time. So on a population level, this is certainly something that's of potential concern. Um, One thing I'm gonna come back to in my concluding statements is really, what one of the things we'd like to do next is understand who are these people and what are some of the barriers. Uh, When we also look at uh, other demographics associated with uh, adherence, we see that adherence appears to be worse among younger age groups, might not be surprising compared to older age groups. Again, those are the blue bars here. And adherence appears to be better among higher income groups compared to lower. And again, this might relate back to issues of opportunity. Um, When we look at uh, country-level data, um, a few interesting findings. Over 75% of people from all countries, except Taiwan and Kenya, appear to be social distancing, at least most of the time. So this is, um, again, global data with the exception of those two countries here. Um, in addition, at least 80% of all people from all countries appear to be hand washing at least most of the time. But interestingly, Um, And this again covers the period from the end of March till about the third week of April. Few countries at this time were wearing masks. Now this could be in part because there wasn't um, as much uh, direction and and policies around or recommendations around wearing masks. But interestingly, only those from Taiwan uh, and Italy were doing this regularly. So if we're looking towards the future and, and bringing again Susan's presentation back in, it would seem, that uh, this is one of the non habitual uh, behaviors that might be uh, uh, really challenging to get people to do if this is something that we think is a good idea. Now, in terms of uh, telling you a little bit about people's COVID 19 related concerns, the under 29s were most concerned about their personal health. Um, however, they were less concerned with others' health, the economy, and getting back to normal compared to the older age groups. So, again, The less than 29s, and this is compared to the 30s to the 70s, appear to show um, interesting differences here. And to me, this was a little counter uh, unexpected, um, to be honest. If we look at uh, concerns as a function of country, and I know there's a lot going on in this graph, so I tried to make it a little bit easier to understand. Interestingly, we see a a sort of a, a pattern in France and Canada, and I don't know if it's our links to France, or I'm not sure what it is. But um, France and Canada together seem to have the highest relative levels of concerns overall, except for personal economic concerns here. Um, However, Kenya, Brazil, and the US were among those with the lowest relative concerns for personal and others' health, and Kenya had the lowest concerns overall, i.e. they showed the lowest levels of concerns across all five categories. Um, There we go. Now, one of the things we wanted to look at is, is statistically, what was the association between concern type and adherence to COVID 19 measures? So we were looking to see were there certain concerns that seemed to be more likely to motivate uh, good adherence. And this is again primarily to hand washing and social distancing. Um, and as you can see here, interestingly, only economic concerns and that's sort of concerns about my personal finances and about the general economy of my country and getting back to normal. Uh, were significant predictors of better adherence to prevention measures worldwide Um, and perhaps the strongest one was really this one here and that is concerns for my economy and this is interesting because this again you have to think about the temporal period of this data was really early on so we're about a month after that where obviously many more impacts and many more things have happened since then and finally we asked people, um, what measures uh, and policies would most convince you to practice social distancing? And uh, of course, those behaviorists uh, on the line uh, may not be surprised by this, but we were really pleased to validate this. Uh, people worldwide told us that telling us, giving us information about how COVID-19 has spread, all those transmission routes that Susan uh, very beautifully outlined in her talk in her paper, um, and, and in particular, telling me how my behavior is slowing the spread of the disease and how my behavior and, and to a larger degree, my sacrifices are saving lives in my community. And interestingly, this was reported consistently by seven of the eight countries. Only Colombia uh, had a slight deviation from these as being the top three measures that would be most convincing. We also asked what measures would least convince you uh, to practice social distancing and may, also, may actually have a counterproductive effect. Uh, once again, we see the, the what I call the sticks rather than the carrots, so threatening people with, with quarantining them, uh, threatening them with fines or arrest for noncompliance, and interestingly, this was universal. So these were the least endorsed measures by all eight countries that I'm presenting uh, to you today. So in summary, Uh, Most people appear to be adhering to major preventive measures, uh, in particular hand washing and social distancing, except uh, Taiwan and Kenya, and only Taiwan and Kenya, and and to some degree Italy, are wearing masks. Younger age groups seem to be less adherent than older age groups overall. Shockingly and a little concerningly, 16% of people who report having confirmed COVID-19 or who suspect having it are not self-isolating. Uh, Though people were generally concerned about their personal health, only economic concerns and getting back to normal were significant uh, predictors of adherence. And reinforcing good behavior, uh, in particular how behavior is saving lives, was more likely to motivate adherence than punishment. And this was true worldwide. So examples, there's a million, again this is sort of put together yesterday, there's a million uh, actionable recommendations I think we can glean from this preliminary data, and there's still so much more we need to look at. But um, some starting points is that public health messages should really provide information about how adherence is helping and how their behaviors are directly tied to blocking those transmission routes. And so we should also emphasize uh, as well how behavior now can help the economy and get us all back to normal quicker. That seemed to be uh, an important actionable step. Um, Remaining issues and next steps is, I think uh, a challenge ahead is to increase uh, mask wearing. I think we need to understand why so many COVID patients are not self isolating um, and how the uh, are the impacts of the pandemic affecting um, people uh, over time. So I want to say thank you to our incredible MBMC staff and, and students involved in this project, uh, in particular uh, Guillaume, Genevieve, uh, Ruth, Capria and Liza uh, and Fanny and, and Joe at WordCrafting and our fantastic students. And of course, all of our international collaborators of so many community and so on. So thank you so much for your attention, and I turn it over to the next speaker.
0: Thanks very much, Kim. Thanks to both uh, Kim and Susan for um, really fantastic talks and such a wealth of information there about how we can apply behavioral uh, science lessons to inform uh, government responses to the pandemic. Um, I'll now hand over to uh, Sherry Stewart, who's our next speaker.
5: Thank you, I'm just gonna try to figure out how I get control here. Ah, okay. I'm just going to make sure this moves ahead. Yes, it does. Okay. Well, I wanted to um, to say first of all that I feel very honored to be part of this um, uh, this symposium today, and I appreciate the invitation from. Uh, Kim and Simon to speak. Um, We're going to be changing gears a little bit now. So we're still talking about behavioral uh, reactions to the pandemic um, and health psychology related theme. Um, However, we're switching gears to look at uh, really maladaptive behavior, so drinking, in the context of the pandemic. So we're going to be looking at some gender differences today and uh, links between mental health and substance use behavior in particular alcohol in the context of the pandemic okay so as we've heard already today we know that uh, many countries um, in an attempt to plot the curve and, and uh, manage the spread of, of the virus have really adopted unprecedented restrictive viral contagion strategies, uh, social distancing, quarantine, lockdown. And uh, the real question today is what, you know, what kind of effects does that have on people's mental health and on their health behaviors? And uh, we do actually know uh, both from studies that are emerging worldwide with this pandemic and previous pandemics. Um, that there are changes that happen. There's, a, a, you know, a major psychological impact of the both of the pandemic itself and of our our containment uh, re- responses as a as a society. So, just some examples. What do we know from SARS? We know that uh, contamination fears increase. So perceptions of threat increase. We also know that for some individuals, psychological distress. Uh, increases both anxiety and depression. Um, There was a nice uh, review of 24 studies on the impacts of quarantine and lockdown uh, procedures during a pandemic, um, bringing together 24 studies that have been done in this area. And the conclusion was that, you know, the effects are variable across individuals, but overall quarantine and lockdown kind of procedures do have negative psychological impacts for some that are severe and are long lasting. What do we know then about about people's um, health behaviors? And I'm gonna focus in on alcohol use. Uh, A recent article in the Lancet really warned about increased alcohol use during uh, the pandemic and how this was uh, likely to be a major public health concern. And there's data now emerging to really support that. Um, in the US, market research shows alcohol sales have increased about 55% in the US since the pandemic. Now, some of you might say, well, obviously people aren't going to restaurants, they're not drinking in their usual environments, so they're you know, buying alcohol, or this might've been panic buying, worrying that the alcohol outlets would close. Um, but when we look at survey research, Um, For example, a study done by the uh, Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction here in Canada, they did a nano's poll across Canada showing that Canadians are drinking more, so the highest rate was 25% reported increasing their alcohol use in the 35 to 54 year old age range, with 44% of those who reported that increase attributing it, that increase to stress. Um, There's been another recent study that I just saw yesterday across Canada study suggesting even higher rates. So it's a little closer to 30% uh, reporting that their alcohol use has increased um, during the pandemic. We do know from previous pandemics like SARS that for some individuals, these changes in their health behaviors, uh, like their substance use behavior do persist beyond the pandemic. So this, this makes it of increase in concern. So patterns that are starting during the pandemic um, persistent. Um, now, in terms of why might this be, one one theory that's relevant here is the is the self-medication hypothesis. So, Krantzian has described this hypothesis as um, contending that people will increase their use of substances like alcohol um, to self-medicate for the distress that they're experiencing. So, to manage emo- negative emotions like anxiety or depression or to manage perceived threats and stresses uh, that they're experiencing. So when we apply this to the context of the d- pandemic, it does suggest that, you know, on average, we should see increases in, in substance use and alcohol use due to self-medication, and that this should be particularly true for people that are experiencing more um, distress and more perceived threat in, in the context of, of the pandemic. What about gender differences? Um, We wanted to take a look at this because there is some literature suggesting that there there might be reasons to predict this might be particularly true for women. First of all, we know that emotional disorders, anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress, all of which might motivate uh, substance use, um, women have higher rates of those disorders. We also know from prior uh, literature, there's a great book written by Steve Taylor on psychological reactions to pandemics that came out before this pandemic, and he summarizes the literature very well. And that's the one individual difference that's most consistent is that women experience greater psychological distress in the context of the pandemic. Um, In terms of the drinking literature, human and animal studies both suggest that women are more susceptible to stress-induced drinking. And in terms of motivations for drinking, while we don't see a lot of consistent gender differences in overall self-reports of drinking to cope, uh, what we do see is that coping motives seem to be associated with heavier drinking more strongly in women than men. So that comes out of the, the largest uh, worldwide study on drinking motives to be conducted to date, crunch at all. Um, so the aims of the present study were to test predictions of the self-medication hypothesis during this pandemic um, in terms of links of perceived threat around COVID-19 and psychological distress um, around COVID-19, that those two variables should be associated with greater alcohol use. And secondly, to explore gender differences to see whether this might be particularly true for women. So we hypothesized um, that we would see associations between two or two measures of COVID-19 stressors, perceived threat and psychological distress, across four with with alcohol use across four different indices of alcohol use and that the above relations would be particularly strong in women so our participants were a large American sample of adults Uh, we particularly chose to match to to balance on gender so 50% of the sample of 754 were women on average they were right in that age range which the uh, nanos poll shows has the highest you know increase in alcohol use um, we were studying people who were in relations for another reason who are in relationships so m- m- the majority of people in this study were married uh, most were white most uh, heterosexual and about two-thirds of them had children at home during the pandemic uh, we did this between april 17th and 23rd through uh, an online study hosted by qualtrics panel surveys And they produce quite high quality uh, survey data. There were two attention checks. They check for IP addresses to make sure people, it's not the same person completing. Um, They uh, remove speeded responses. Um, So this is all high quality data. Um, The two measures that we used to look at COVID-19 stressors were the perceived coronavirus threat questionnaire short version. So it consisted of three items and the coronavirus impacts questionnaire uh, the psychological subscale. So it was two items that assess psychological distress in response to COVID-19 and all of these items are completed on a one to seven scale where they say it's not true of me to very true of me. The first thing we did was make sure that these two scales are actually separable, assessing separable constructs with a factor analysis. And as you can see, they're clearly Uh, Dividing into two different factors that are correlated, uh, but not, uh, but moderately correlated, not, not too overlapping. Um, Our alcohol use measures were, uh, we looked in the past month, so this was all during um, uh, social distancing lockdown because it occurred in that week of April 17th. Um, So we looked, assessed um, with DIMEF's measure, the maximum number of drinks during the heaviest uh, a recent drinking occasion during that last last month, uh, anywhere from zero to 25, the number of drinks consumed on a typical drinking occasion in the last month, how often they were drinking in the past month. So the number of days that they consumed alcohol and then the frequency of their heavy drinking episodes. So that was defined as four plus drinks on a single occasion within two hours for a woman or five plus for men. And we looked at how often that was occurring over the last month. Um, Here's our intercorrelation matrix. I think the first thing I want to point out to you is this is the gender column and you can see that men are engaging in heavier consumption and more frequent consumption as we already know. No gender differences in in threat or distress, which was a little surprising to us. Threat and distress here, how correlated they are, as I mentioned, they're moderately correlated, but certainly not redundant constructs. Um, What you can see here is this is threat and this is distress. And you can see the four uh, very four drinking variables are significantly correlated. A tendency for a stronger relationship with distress than for threat. Overall, here are our means too. Um, if you're interested, so on a seven-point scale, the average person is giving a rating of of uh, four for threat, a little lower uh, at three point five for um, uh, for distress. Now we predicted each one of these. Um, in that using a negative binomial regression model. So the first one I want to show you here is predicting the peak number of drinks on any one occasion. So their heaviest drinking episode in the last month, how many drinks did they consume? You can see men are drinking more on these heavy drinking episodes. Um, COVID distress, as we have predicted, is showing a significant positive association. And we're seeing this distress by gender Uh, interaction that I want to show you here in a figure. So what you can see is that as COVID related psychological distress increases, so does the peak number of drinks on the heaviest recent drinking occasion. But that's true only for women and not for men. And in fact, at low levels of psychological distress, we see the usual pattern that that men are heavier consumers than women. But what happens at high levels of psychological distress, we see the women catching up or converging with the men. The next thing we wanted to predict was the number of drinks on a typical drinking occasion. Here we see men are drinking more on a typical drinking occasion, those in a relationship of shorter duration, um, those who have children in the home, which is a bit concerning during the pandemic. Uh, again, distress is predicting as we hypothesized and distress by gender. So we see that same uh, interaction, exactly the same as I showed you before. Psychological distress increases, so does the amount they're consuming on a typical drinking occasion. That's true only for women, not for men, women catching up with men at high levels of distress. This is frequency, how often people are consuming alcohol. Gender is predictive, so men are drinking more frequently than women during this time, as we might expect. And distress is also predictive, but no interaction for this. Um, Probably a little, I think the literature would suggest a little less concerning index of alcohol use in terms of its links with um, physical health consequences. And the number of heavy episodic uh, drinking, heavy binge drinking occasions that occurred in the last month. Men are binge drinking more frequently. Younger people are binge drinking more frequently. Those in a shorter duration relationship. Again, concerningly, those with children at home. And here we see both uh, threat, perceived threat, and distress are uh, associated with increased consumption. And this time, gender is interacting with perceived threat. And it's that same nature of the relationship where the, uh, the slope is only positive for women. It looks like it's significant for men, but it's not statistically so. And we see the women catching up with the men at higher levels of distress. So to summarize, we do see that psychological distress is consistently associated with increased drinking across all four of our indices of drinking during the pandemic. And perceived threat was also associated with increased binge drinking frequency um, over and above psychological distress. Um, The effects were significant for women only for three of these these relationships and the ones on the more risky drinking indices. So the the ones involving quantity. Um, Having children at home, this was not a prediction of our study, but it was really interesting uh, finding to emerge. On both drinking quantity and heavy episodic drinking frequency, those who have children at home are tending to drink uh, more heavily. So, to to interpret these findings, uh, uh, are cross-sectional findings, so we don't know the directionality, but they certainly are consistent with predictions that come out of um, the self-medication hypothesis. And if we uh, assume that directionality, it does seem that people are self-medicating primarily to manage psychological distress, but maybe also frequently drinking um, in in a binge drinking manner to manage perceived threat as well around COVID-19. The fact that women were uniquely likely to increase their drinking in response to psychological distress and perceived threat is consistent with that literature I showed you before. Um, and we don't really know why it's possible that they're experiencing increased role strain between work and family conflict. So, um, you know, during social distancing and stay at home uh, orders, uh, women may be working from the home, uh, managing homeschooling and having a lot of, um, you know, role conflict in those in those uh, dual roles that they're not typically having in their, in their normal lives outside of COVID-19. Um, in terms of clinical implications, it's, it seems quite important to continue monitoring of alcohol use, particularly in women, uh, as the COVID-19 pandemic uh, evolves. And women in particular should have some preventative interventions around alcohol problems. Like this is, you know, re- quite concerning when you see women's levels of drinking catching up with men, because women will have more consequences at the same time. Uh, physical consequences at the same level of alcohol consumption in terms of uh, a risk for a number of, of diseases. And so we need, we need to help women with training and alternative uh, ways to manage psychological distress and perceived threat. And we need a lot more research about role strain, particularly when we're seeing uh, those with children at home drinking more. And this could be a novel target for intervention in women if, uh, if that proves to be an important um, mediating factor. And I just want to acknowledge my colleagues, Dr. Lindsay Rodriguez and Dr. Um, Dana Litt. Uh, Lindsay Rodriguez is actually the lead investigator on this particular study. So she's at the University of South Florida. And thank Qualtrics for helping us w- with this, as well as the University of South Florida for funding this and the Canada Research Chairs Program for uh, funding my work, and if anybody needs my email, it's right there.
0: Thank you very much, sherry. That was another um, fantastic presentation um really important work you're doing there and um hopefully we'll be you. informative for you know working through how we actually support uh, women particularly and um, through the covid nineteen pandemic so thank you very much and um, so I'm going to hand over now to uh, Michael Vallis and Robert West who will um moderate our discussion period so we just we have just under half an hour for that till
3: um 12:05. Hi yeah so um i think um, michael shall i um take uh, what we're going to do is uh, we've got loads of questions coming um and they've been very nicely sorted for us uh so um what i'll i'll take the first one and then we'll just alternate um asking them on your on your behalf. Uh, and we'll try to get the broadest uh, coverage. So um, I'm probably just, I'm I'm gonna start with just uh, doing it in order. So with Susan's talk, uh, for example. um, uh, So um, Angela uh, Fafmata, um, if I pronounce that right, uh, um, asks, um, Susan mentioned the need for trustworthy sources uh, to put out information in a way that can be understood by the public. Um, but that requires inherent trust in the sources by the public. How can we increase and instill trust from the public in the process uh, and products of science? And this is very relevant to the UK where our government has clearly demonstrated itself to be completely untrustworthy. (laughs) You're on
1: mute, Susan. Was that one for me? yes so um it's it's how to uh i mean it's a question about how to build trust um and how to maintain trust i suppose and uh one thing that i think is really important is um working with communities uh certainly in the uk it's been a very top-down type of issuing of uh guidance and edicts um and i think that um it's quite fragile because if the um trust is threatened in any way, as we've seen recently in the UK, um, there's nothing much underpinning it. Whereas if um, the uh, government or whoever the sources, authorities are, are working um, closely with all communities, neighbourhoods, communities, working communities, demographic communities, um, then not only are they likely to have um, better guidance and more implementable guidance, but also there'll be shared ownership And so people are more likely to implement it. And um, there'll be more trust in those who are um, giving the guidance. So there's several other things, but I think that's the thing that um, comes to my mind first.
2: And if I could just, Robert, sorry, just quickly interject um, just a little I care tidbit. So one of the questions we did ask is who are your major sources of information about COVID and policies and so on of what you should be doing. And the top two ranked sources of information were still local health authorities and government and particular you know what i'm reading in the newspaper hearing on the news hearing on the radio so these around the world anyway seem to be the top two sources which means that you know they're going to do the most have to have the most benefit or potentially have the most harms so just wanted to compliment
3: that's really interesting and you you know i I'm just going through your results it was uh, i was thinking wow you know we Really do with some of these results uh, coming out here now, so we 're going to use them like crazy um, I just wanted to sherry, did you want to say anything about that issue of trust before before I hand over to Michael you'll have to take your you're music. on
5: mute, sherry thank you i I actually thought that i'd <laughs> taking it off thank you um, i don 't have much to to add i mean I think um i think that's a, a huge issue also with messaging around around drinking right um people are trusting uh information that's coming from Um, sources that may not be reliable. And, uh, you know, there was misinformation about drinking being beneficial, (laughs) killing the virus, you know, things like this. Um, uh, And so I think this issue is is very important in this area as well. And also, I think social norms are a part of uh, what may be going on with with, uh, this, you know, these changes in drinking. Certainly with social media, you see tons of information about people normalizing that drinking, you know, drinking with kids at home is okay. It's a good way to manage all of this. And uh, so really normalizing that. And I think, you know, that issue of like trust in uh, social norm information and lack of trust in in, uh, the information that's coming from government is an issue as well in this area.
2: I wonder, Robert, if I could just ask or sort of make a comment and ask a sort of a related question one of the things that struck me, Sherry, was how women's behavior is catching up to that of men. And I think most people were in couples. I was wondering if, well, listen, he's drinking. I've got nothing else to do. I, I can't go to my yoga classes. I might as well just join him. And I'm wondering if there's a bit of a interplay between or modeling and saying, well, geez, there's nothing else to do. And I'm wondering if that could be playing a role in, in that catch up, those catch up looking graphs that we saw.
5: Yeah, we actually just published, um, this is outside of the COVID, but we just published on uh, mutual influences on drinking behavior, a meta-analysis on that very question. And actually, uh, yeah, it is more true that women will be the ones that are, you know, uh, influencing. So um, this, I think you've got, you've got a good good point, Kim. And we're actually launching, we're just funded and we're launching a study to look at that in couples. So this study was not, it was people who were in relationships, but they just participated on their own. And now we're, we're going to do it with couples to see if that is something that's going on.
2: Well, I don't know if this is true of uh, Susan and Robert, but I think it's more like Simon's catching up with me now, but... <laughs> yeah, <that plays> out. <laughs> <laughs>
4: So Maybe I'll pick up here. This is uh, what an awesome presentation, a series of papers. Uh, I can't imagine having seen such data presented so quickly, but we've got an amazing demonstration of theory, method, and evidence from the behavioral sciences. A uh, question here is given the COVID-19 experience, how do we leverage this to embed behavioral scientists in the general decision making and policy processes of government, given that most of the challenges in the world are behavioral in nature.
1: Susan, do you want want to start? Yeah, I'm happy to start. I think it's um, given us a great opportunity to um, demonstrate the relevance of a way of thinking about problems and um, being able to bring, as you say, evidence, um, theory, and uh, also methods for um, studying and answering questions. And I think the key thing will be how how we manage to build on that. Um, So I don't know about other countries, but uh, we have we report to the Scientific Advisory Group in Emergencies, which is just set up for um, pandemics. I mean, this one I think will have quite a long life. But when I was on the H1N1 in 2009, I mean, it was less than a year that uh, we were, we were on it. But, you know, there I was the only behavioral scientist out of, uh, or social scientists out of about 14 scientists. And I managed to persuade them um, to set up a behavioral subgroup and pay for research assistant time. And um, we then got grants and wrote papers. And so that, uh, in fact, is now shared by somebody who came as a young researcher to work with me. And the group is three times as big Uh, you know, really excellent and and more influential. So I think it's about, um, you know, showing a model of what can work, um, publishing as you go, so that it's not just uh, lost in the depths of, you know, government corridors or whatever. Um, And, and, you know, talking about it, you know, ensuring that you take part in the media. I mean, certainly half a dozen of us in the UK have had a very high profile television and radio. And I think that's really important. to you know, establish what what is a behavioural scientist? You know, why are they relevant to this? Uh, so I think it's been a fantastic opportunity um, for you know e- educating government, press, um, population at large, and uh, we we just need to build on it.
2: I have um, just sort of a, a comment and a, and a question. Um, from my perspective, I, I agree. I think I think the governments really don't understand the the the, the potential insights and and contributions I think behavioral scientists can make. Um, I'm we could spend all day talking about why that might be, but I think one of the things that I think is is going to be important to do if we do want governments to stand up and and sort of listen to some of the things that we might have to offer is coming back to something, Susan, you mentioned in your talk, and that is you have to understand what their agendas are. And and sometimes that's explicit and sometimes it's not. And I think, you know, um, certainly if it's me in the room, I definitely want to know, tell me what you care about. Tell me what your agenda is, because I'm not going to be, I don't think I'm going to be able to influence you if I don't know what your, you know, quote unquote, barriers are and motivators. And so I think it comes down to, again sort of a model of shared decision making but you need to understand where the other person is coming from and governments are these massive organizations that are in huge conflicts of interests and and i think it's reflected in a lot of the you know contradictory policies and things that are coming out and are really confusing i don't know about internationally i mean i i can certainly i see a lot of um canadian and american news Uh, But there's a lot of confusion about what I should do and what I shouldn't do. And if the politicians aren't modeling the good behavior, it gives people a lot of excuses not to do it either. All of that to say that I think communication strategy, not just what you're saying, but just the overall strategy is critical. And as an international community around COVID and, and where I think the scientists, all of us, not just behavioral scientists, but biological scientists and biomedical I think we need to agree internationally on the criteria that the different countries need to kind of meet for things and restrictions to be loosened. And I'm, I, I, to me, even, and someone who's watching this very closely, I don't think that um, that's really widely, um, widely known. And certainly there's no, nothing's accepted uh, across the different governments. So I think to me, anyway, I think that's going to be key is to have those that, you know, that transparency so that, you know we know what what the barriers are for the for the politicians and the policymakers
5: i don 't really have anything I agree with all the points made. I think just picking up on one other theme that was in your your comment, uh, Michael was just the importance of theory and um, you really see a lot of uh, survey ba- based research on covid nineteen that 's out there now, and people are quickly like pulling, pulling together questionnaires and getting them out there, but not all of them are theory driven. And I really, what I kind of liked across um, the, t- the series of talks today was the real theory that drove the questions that were being asked. Um, I, I really think that that can lead to so much uh, you know, research that can really move things forward a lot, a lot better than uh, non-theory driven research.
4: Thank you. That's great. I'll pass to Robert.
3: Yeah, actually Sherry, um, there's a question um, uh, directed at your presentation. Mm-hmm. An interesting one from Linda Carlson says, uh, I agree that role strain between work and homeschooling is a primary cause of stress for women at home now. And um, she asked, do you have data on who was working from home and who was not? And I should uh, say that um, uh, it was reported that uh, in the UK that homeschooling, um, uh, was costing uh, parents something in the region of twenty thousand dollars, but uh, one thousand if they didn't drink.
5: <laughs> yeah, um, unfortunately, we, Linda, we don't have in this data set that uh, that data. In this study that's going forward with couples, we will have that data. We're asking about homeschooling. We're asking about role strain. Um, we're we're seeing who's working from home um how long they've been doing it looks a lot more detail on those kind of questions that we'll be able to get at that issue. But this study actually wasn't designed as a COVID study. It was one of those, I think like many people, it was something that was set to go. And when COVID happened, we put some some measures in that were relevant. And so it didn't address all of the issues that I would have liked to if I'd designed this to really get at this this question.
3: Uh, in the absence of data psychologists are really good at speculating (laughs) i wonder (laughs) if you might want to uh speculate on what what you might expect and then and then ask kim and susan to comment.
5: sorry could you ask the question again
3: yeah just um uh you know not having the data i just wondered whether you might want to speculate
5: yes well first of all i do think uh i i do think that Um, First of all, seeing that having children at home was was associated with heavier consumption. um, I suspect that that is to do with homeschooling. And I do suspect that that has to do with that role strain of either that people are trying to manage if they're working in an essential service, coming back, teaching their kids, going back to work, or trying to manage their home environment to allow them to both work from home and, and manage homeschooling with their children. So that's an incredible, you know, stressor. And, uh, and so I do think that that's why we're, and, and we also know that those duties, even though we've had, you know, uh, changes within our culture to make things a bit more egalitarian, we still know, like the most recent Stats Canada data show that those, those duties do fall to women. And I'm sure during COVID that's, that's happening even more. So there's been quite a bit in the media anyway on the, the whole issue of this she session you know that this is uh the, these kind of things are really going to economically impact women more than men and it's it's very concerning and i'm sure those kind of things are also weighing on women's minds
2: um one thing i can add is um um about this working from home and having kids in the home and and we do have that data collected in eye care so I've already spoken to kind of Sherry offline. We do collect drinking behavior and how drinking is changing over time uh, as through the different waves. Um, It's not using a lot of those more sensitive measures in in your previous study, because ours wasn't designed as a drinking study, but um, we do have a sense of uh, how health behaviors in general. So we expect to see increasing in drinking, increasing in uh, perhaps drug use, increasing in eating, decreases in physical activity, um, uh, and so on. So, you know, we, we do collect a lot of that health behavior data. We, we are also looking at um, vaccine history and vaccine intentions. I didn't present that data today, but we do have that as well. So I think that there's a lot of really interesting things. And of course, you know, there's a lot of eye care collaborators on, on, on the panel, on the call. And of course, we're open, open for business, as they say. So uh, I think there's a lot of things that we can start digging into uh, in, in the eye in the care data as well.
1: So I, I don't really like to speculate um, without any data. So I'll draw on an N of one study. The participants are a 64-year-old woman living in London. <laughs> and uh, the, the results of that N of one study, um, I think, are twofold. And, and it may generalize to others. One is that um, it's actually quite boring. There's much less variety in a day than there is when you go into work, you travel, you listen to what other people are saying on the bus, or you even talk to them, you go in and out of shops. You know, There's a lot of variation um, going from office to office, meeting different people uh, within a day. Um, whereas if you're in the same environment for a lot of the day, um, it's actually there's, there's less stimulation and variety. The other thing is that, um, you know, it's sort of 24-7. It's a bit weird, you know, because the day is is punctuated temporarily um, by uh, being out the house, uh, meals out the house, various things happening. And um, there's very much a coming home in the evening, which is, you know, well, you don't always leave work behind, but at least for some periods, you know, and you either might come home and you might go to the gym or you know do something different but you're home and there's been a break between work and home whereas this well you're still in the same room (laughs) you might move from one side of the room to the other or you know if you're lucky from one room to another room and but I think there's something about punctuating the end of a working day and signaling an evening and relaxation and um, you know when the options are limited you know there's that bottle of wine yeah. Susan, can I just add to that? I, I totally agree.
5: So, you know, I think my my whole talk was, was uh, focused around one motivation, which is coping. But there are many more motivations that can be uh, risky motivations that can be happening during a pandemic. So, you know, managing boredom, need for stimulation, you know, alcohol will, um, you know, g- give you that rush and that uh, excitement feeling, right? So I think, and, and and I bet there's individual differences as well, because we know there's individual personality influences why why people drink, and I bet it influences why they drink under a pandemic as well.
4: Great, thanks. I'll, um, maybe at this point, we've got about 10 minutes left before we have to end the session. So I think I'll ask a fairly um, Probably a brief question to Kim, um, just so that it, a good opportunity, you kind of alluded to this in your comment just a minute ago, but someone has asked, are there still opportunities to join the eye care study, get a new country or a new language involved? Can you just let the audience? Yes, uh, know
2: absolutely. Just get in touch with me or a member of the IBTN staff, <laughs> probably Jen Chapanic if you can. And, yeah, we're definitely open for more collaborators in more countries. Absolutely. It's uh, really uh, we're, we're thrilled to mobilize the behavioral medicine community, and we're definitely open for business. <laughs> Great.
4: Great. Okay, thank you. Thanks for that. Um, Sherry, could I just ask you, could you comment on the public health implications of women kind of equaling men in their drinking behavior under conditions like this, and just what what kind of a risk this might provide or present to the public health?
5: Yeah, so I mentioned that there was this uh, paper in the Lancet, kind of worry, warning about the public health implications of increased alcohol consumption uh, during the pandemic, and I think our data shows that that's particularly concerning for women, women who are highly distressed during the pandemic, and um, and that th- this is of of concern, like that that you know catching up um, for you know number of drinks that they consume on a heavy drinking uh, episode. Just as one example, we know that men and women, uh, their ability, their body's ability to tolerate the same amount of alcohol, it's not equal. (laughs) And so you get, you know, with similar levels of alcohol consumption, you have a higher risk for women for many diseases, uh, uh, you know, uh, cancers, heart disease, Many. So it, that was really concerning when I looked at the figures. That was the first thing that kind of jumped out at me was that wow, you know, we hear about gender convergence just in general that women are kind of catching up to men in in alcohol consumption, and here was an example of when it occurs, right? Or and potentially starting to look at why it occurs. Like the pandemic might give us a model for why this is happening, but certainly, uh, you know, very very concerning from a public health perspective.
4: Any other comments
3: on that? From other there's, there's loads of really cool questions and obviously we're not going to be able to get to them all. And I do apologize uh, uh, for, um, you know, if we don't get to them. But I'm just wondering whether the organizers might um, pass the questions on so that they can, one of the great things about this Kind of way of doing it is they can be answered offline and maybe distributed with the materials i think that'd be really cool um but one that um uh i think it would be particularly interested i think people would be interested to get people's uh, uh speakers views on is around social norms from bridget uh Boisier. um and um She was wondering whether you could comment on the role of norms in relation to adherence to the recommendations, and particularly this thorny issue. It is in this country. Anyway, I don't know if it is in Canada uh, of face masks, um, which are obviously hugely different across different countries in terms of whether they're normative or not, irrespective of um, uh, whether they're effective in as obviously they're effective if they're used properly but you know whether they're genuinely effective or potentially harmful if they're not um so i I just wanted um you know maybe start with kim did you want to Mm -hmm.
2: sure i think i think it's a great question and in fact um there's some unique i find there's some unique aspects about mask wearing that make it an interesting behavior to study one is that it's not automatic it's not something we're used to doing it's a new behavior we'd be asking most people to do the second thing is, um, I think, what masks tend to signal or what they represent for a lot of people. And that certainly, a lot of the masks that we've seen, you know, it signals infection or medical or, you know, healthcare personnel. Um, and it's overall negative. Okay. So I think that there's a little bit of, you know, I remember when I was in New York City for spring break um, a couple months ago and no one was wearing masks, but there was one taxi driver that was. And I remember being very aware that my reflection was, oh my God, is he sick? Because I knew that you're only supposed to wear a mask if you're sick. And I was like, do I take the taxi or not? So I wonder if that might be playing into it as well. Another interesting aspect about adherence to mask wearing and where social norms can come in is like social distancing, you can't hide it. So it's explicit. Uh, and it's overt, and if you're doing it, everybody knows it, and if you're not doing it, everybody knows it. And I think if we can build it into the norms uh, and, and make it more normative, um, I think like social distancing to some degree, um, we can get more people to, to adhere. And again, I think it's going to be challenging for the reasons that I just mentioned. In addition to the fact that it, the, the, the recommendations are confusing, I can speak for Canada very quickly they say we really strongly recommend it but it's still optional so i think that lends a lot of confusion
3: yeah and i, I think there's an issue around how people use it I don't know about it in canada but uh in, in the UK, uh, actually, and I've seen on, on, you know, pictures of other countries. I mean, the, the mask wearing is laughable, really. I mean, in terms of how people use it. I mean, it's it's almost as though people use it as a talisman rather than anything else. You know, I've got the mask and it's going to give me some sort of magical protection. Um, uh, Sherry, I wondered if you had any uh, thoughts about that or comments on this normative aspect and the role. Yeah. I
5: am on, okay. Yes, um, I think that that's really important in the alcohol area. Um, certainly something again people are talking about their own end of one studies but i have seen on social media just tons of um, normalizing um uh images and posts around drinking during the pandemic and um you know some of them are are using humor like you know mums drinking while they're managing while they're trying to work and while they're trying to manage their children's homeschooling and um and so it's quite concerning, like, you know, often humor just reflects what's happening in society, right? So that these these are like normative, social norms, uh, information that's getting out there. And, uh, and so, but I don't see sort of the equal, once in a while I see something coming from CCSA, just kind of reminding people of, you know, the moderate drinking recommendations, but that has not been as prevalent as what I've seen in terms of social norms around uh normalizing drinking during this time. Um so uh we're just actually start, again starting a study about that, about uh about posting and uh who's doing it and how is it related to drinking and to distress.
3: Um
5: mm. but I think it's an important issue.
3: Mm. Thanks, Susan. Uh,
1: yeah. Um I'll just be a bit deviant and not talk about social norms and go back to um, masks, Um, but we'll end on uh, the issue of behaviour. Because as we all know, there's uh, it's pretty well an evidence free zone in terms of the effectiveness of masks in community settings. And so people are adopting it for different reasons. And some of it's, I think, to do with identity, some of it's to do with anxiety. Um, But One of the things I think is uh, really important is the difference between the effectiveness of masks uh, when you try them out in laboratories in controlled conditions and can prove, look, X percent of um, the virus droplets uh, and and aerosols don't get through this mask is completely different than what happens um, in real time, in real context with real people wearing them. And, I think that's again where behavioural scientists can come in. Uh, Yes, if the right kind of masks are are worn in the right kind of way and taken off and disposed of in the right kind of way, um, they are likely to be effective. Um, However, the reality is that people uh, fiddle with their masks and um, touch them when they take them off and mask a fantastic um, collector of virus because of the warm, damp um, atmosphere one creates on the inside of the mask and unless they're uh, thrown away, uh, which obviously is uh, very wasteful in terms of plastic and pollution, or put straight into a, a hot soapy water, then they can be put on a surface. And the whole thing becomes a new viral transmission where people touch their masks, get the virus on their hands, uh, touch other surfaces, the masks touch other surfaces. And so you know, you're actually increasing risk of transmission. And the other concern is about people feeling uh, safe even though it's meant to be to protect other people um, I think often people feel safer themselves and so there may be less attention to social distancing and other personal protective behaviours and certainly when I was um, in Japan a couple of years ago I remember a woman saying her mother wore her mask 24-7 wore all night in bed because she felt unsafe without her mask on so I think it's a really nice illustration of how you absolutely have to understand behaviour if you're going to um, come to a, a rounded conclusion about uh, when and for whom masks are likely to be effective,
2: and just to add on, you know, some of the data I presented would suggest that among the zero to 29 age group, if that's your target group, they're not so concerned about protecting others. So I think that this, if this is something that we want people to do, and I agree with Susan, I'm not, I'm personally ambivalent about masks because I, I, the data is all over the place. Um, you know, we've got to think about what is likely to motivate, and if the message is "protect your community, wear a mask," with all the sacrifices and inconveniences that come with that, it may be extremely challenging.
3: Hmm. That's a really good point. I, I think it may be one of these areas where um, you have to see a given behavior in a broader context, and and the and the intervention as a broader intervention. So rather than just a simple recommendation about face masks, it would have to come with education training maybe, um, uh, environmental change to facilitate safe disposal you know kind of the way you might think about an ITU um, uh, where you know it's all gear it's all set up for donning protective equipment and then and safely um, taking it off again and so on so um,
4: anyway handing over to Michael will
3: probably be the last round I'm guessing.
4: Okay so there's a really interesting kind of question here. I think it puts a great sort of context and uh, raises kind of social justice issue with regard to behavioral science and there's a long history of hated minorities being blamed for epidemics and the animosity often turns into violence and persecution. There are examples of this phenomenon starting to pop up in the COVID pandemic. How should the behavioral science community view this? Should we be trying to do something to address this issue? And I'll let anyone respond.
1: Well, I'll start with very basic issue about the importance of um, showing commonalities across groups and showing shared identity and shared situations. And what we've seen in the pandemic and what we see in crisis situations is is not what people often say, which is that things, um, you know, people show themselves up as selfish and greedy, etc. That's not what happens. It brings out the best in humanity. Um, And you see incredible acts of collective solidarity and generosity. And um, I think um, it brings people together and people suddenly focus on, you know, we're all in this together. We're all facing the same threat, the same situation. How can we help each other? And and this is, you know, hardwired into ourselves. And I think, um, sadly, the kind of... um, Individualistic, consumeristic, um, harsh capitalist societies that a lot of us live in um, really squash those kind of sentiments. And again, one of the things I hope, you know, the positives, the silver linings that might come out of this, I mean, it so much depends on the agency and, and how we go forward uh, in our, our communities and try and shape a new kind of world. But one of our objectives should be trying to shape. Uh, not only one that's better for the planet but a more a kind and more caring kind of world where um people are really looking out for each other whoever the other is
2: yeah I, I i agree and and that was well said susan i think i also think too that um i think it is a minority of people who are um blaming and pointing fingers and i think it doesn't necessarily represent the the, the majority view and i think we. And I noticed I've been kind of following the questions as well, and I think it speaks as well to what's being publicized in the media, what's being touted by governments and and not just fake news, but fake information that's coming from the highest authorities that could be advertently or inadvertently fueling some of these social issues. And I think it's extremely important. And I think it's important for more than behavioral science. I think it's important for communities everywhere to stand up and hold their governments accountable for potentially inciting some of this absolute nonsense. And so I think that we're part of that um, information and scientific base, but I think this is a community issue, not just a scientific community issue. And I do believe, as Susan does, that it's it's a minority of people, but unfortunately it gets a lot of attention. But it's extremely important to answer the question, it's extremely important, but I think we should all collectively be standing up against that those fallacies.
4: Thank you, Sherry, any comment?
5: Um, I completely agree with everything I've just heard. And I think uh, I just wanted to point out the difference between um, the, mono- the minority who are blaming and angry and possibly more that are fearful. So that z- xenophobia. Um, so once again, like uh, you talked Kim about, you know, the mask being something that you can see uh that immediately instills fear and i think um there's there's some data to show like across pandemics that people start to fear you know where the the virus originated from and they um so those kind of things might not be so explicit blaming um anger but they might be nonetheless things that are uh creating um you know, stereotypes and, and stigmatization of, uh, of different different groups. So that, that's, I think, a responsibility that we have to educate and to, to try to combat that as well, the xenophobia.
2: And one Thanks. thing too that came, seemed to come out in eye care is, is that struck me or that's striking me so far, because as I said, we're just really starting to look under the surface, is how similar the, the, the concerns and how similar the behaviors and, and intentions are and motivators are across people i mean we had this you know i presented a snapshot but um some of the general analyses that weren't country specific are on the whole population which includes data from 143 countries so i couldn't present it by 143 countries but um I, you know it's kind of incredible when you do, do those cross-country comparisons is really how similar we are rather than how different despite all of the apparent differences you know, uh, contextually and otherwise. So that was really kind of nice to see.
4: Awesome. Thank you so much. We still have quite a few questions, but we unfortunately are out of time. So we'll have to bring this session to a close. I'd like to thank you all for presenting amazing amount of work. Um, Remarkable how quickly this highly organized information has been put together. And uh, just what a Wonderful demonstration of the power of uh, behavioral uh, science. So, thank you, everybody. And, uh, uh, I guess we go to a break now, do we? Yep. Yeah. Thank,
0: thank you, everyone. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, thank everyone. Um, lunch or dinner? <laughs> it's Nicola here. I've got a few notes just to a uh, uh, reminders before we go on our break. I um, just want to thank all the panelists, um, our speakers, and our discussants for, um, as Michael said, this has been an absolutely fantastic session. Um, you know, there's so much of behavioural science that is um, applicable to this, this pandemic. As Susan had said, behaviour is at, at the centre of everything um, related to the pandemic. So, fantastic to hear about this amazing work and also want to thank the um, the audience for posing such fantastic questions and um, just to note that the IBTN team are collating those questions um, and the uh, answers will be posted um, on the IBTN website in the future. Um, our next session um, on methodological innovations and updates will begin in about 45 minutes um, at 1 p.m. Eastern time. And just another final reminder um, that uh, the link for tomorrow's session will be sent at the end of the day-to-day. Um, thank you, everyone.